Okay, so we're back to Cracks in Postmodernity with Sam Rocha. I said it right, I hope. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about politics, specifically socialism. But before we do that, Sam, just tell us a little bit about your background and the stuff that you're interested in, stuff you specialize in and all that. Sure. Um, I'll kind of go a bit, you know, more biography than interest first. You know, I was, um, I was born in Texas, in Brownsville, Texas, and grew up moving around in a lay Catholic missionary family. Um, so I kind of wasn't, I'm not just a cradle Catholic in the sort of generic sense, but kind of I grew up in church halls and rectories and all that stuff. And my family was affiliated uh, with the, both the charismatic renewal movement mm -hmm. in the United States and also the Renovación Cristiana in, in Mexico and Latin America. So I kind of grew up in a uh, bicultural, binational, um, Catholic, but Catholic on both sides um, uh, environment. Um, if you know anything about the renewal movement in, in those at those times, then it's no surprise that I went to Franciscan University uh, for undergrad and um, met my wife there. We got married right after uh, like good Franciscan students. Uh, and <laughs> uh, I went on to, in, in uh, uh, I studied philosophy in undergrad and then I went on, uh, decided not to study philosophy or so I thought. And uh, I, I, I became a teacher and um, I enrolled in a master's program at University of St. Thomas in education and kind of found philosophy again there. Uh, but was fairly dissatisfied, and that dissatisfaction eventually catapulted me into getting my uh, PhD in philosophy of education at Ohio State. Um, and uh, yeah, after that, I did a stint at Wabash College as a visiting assistant professor in Indiana, um, and uh, primarily teaching American philosophy and philosophy of education, and then moving up to my first tenure track position in the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks. And uh, and what we call educational foundations, uh, which is just like philosophy, history, sociology of education. Yeah. And uh, then 2014, moved out here to Canada in Vancouver, where I am presently, um, where I'm speaking from. And I've been here almost eight years. Um, and I work in a uh, interdisciplinary educational studies department. So where everyone studies ostensibly education, um, but from the perspective of different disciplines. And my discipline is a subfield of philosophy of education. So mm -hmm. there's we have a Noah's Ark rule. Uh, so there's two. Uh, everyone. So we have two historians, two philosophers, two sociologists, and somehow we have a lot more cultural studies people. I don't know how they figured that one out, but anyway. Um, so yeah, that's a lot of my work. Uh, you know, that's kind of my journey through the academy, being raised Catholic and being raised in a particular kind of Catholic culture. I've pretty much been a very online Catholic since, you know, since the time, since just the moment when Facebook stopped being just for university students in like 2004 and five. Um, all the way into the Catholic blogospheres of the mid to late 2000s, uh, the Pathios blog stuff, yep. writing some one-off stuff for first things and Ethica Politica and, and any number of places. And, uh, and now, you know, um, Twitter is kind of the, the place where we, uh, where one finds at least a lot of that discourse. And, and I'm also writing a bit for, you know, a few spots like America and Commonweal and a few other places, but, um, yeah. And so I'm pretty, I, you know, I think people listening to your podcast right you know fairly outspoken on any number of things one of them within the last few years has been the question of socialism and um, i'm expecting that's why you're interested in talking about that yes so let's get into it um, yeah you know so i've had people on talk about different perspectives about our current political situation in the u.s um but i haven't had anyone speaking from you know in defense of socialism so i want to hear especially coming from you know from the catholic faith coming from that kind of worldview how do you begin to make sense of socialism and also come to the conclusion that it's something of value in our in our circumstances today in the U.S.? Yeah, uh, I think that's a great question. Um, that's, that's a great way, I think, to frame 
um, the the question of socialism or the question of why socialism, right? Um, and I have maybe what may be a slightly uninspiring answer, but it's just very kind of basic, which is uh, my orientation to socialism is principally a matter a matter of kind of historical record. So um, I came to um, my my intellectual formation was heavily heavily um, impacted by the school of thought, the Catholic school of thought called personalism. In particular, the uh, the French magazine Esprit and the founding editor of that magazine, Emmanuel Mounier. Um, I um, I consider myself in many ways a personalist first, and as a consequence of that personalism, a socialist. But to be honest, um, <laughs> the commitment to socialism that emerges from personalism is, in many ways, for me, just the historical artifact of any number of debates, including the debates between Mounier and Maritain, for instance. Um, uh, but also the movements, the the the, the very uh, concrete movements. Some of obviously in in his time, the anti-Nazi movie movements, the anti-Vichy movements, um, the movements that spread into Eastern Europe and Central Europe, in particular in Poland. Um, but then today, um, it's really um, the 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 movements one finds uh, on the left between. Uh, kind of the fringe orientation of the DSA in the United States. So the DSA, uh, this is something they're always critiqued by the real communists. Uh, the PSL always critiques the DSA for kind of being an outpost uh, for the Democratic Party, at least since Sanders and uh, AOC came in. And uh, and that's very much where I am in the DSA. Um, I'm very happy to work in that very moderate, pragmatic uh, place in American politics. In Canadian society, that would be within the um, the NDP, the, the uh, uh, National Democratic Party. Um, uh, um, and... Um, and it's very awkward place between the Greens and the Liberals. Um, and uh, if I was in Scotland, uh, I would be probably a member of the Socialist Party there, which is actually, I believe the head is still a traditionalist Catholic of that party. Um, if I was in Brazil, I'd probably uh, be fighting for Lula and against Bolsonaro right now, part of the Workers' Party, which has socialist foundations. If I was a Tanzanian, I would probably be deeply impacted by the socialist vision of Julius Nyerere. Um, my, my point here, I'm making it kind of through iteration, is that there's just a lot of Catholic socialism on the record and alive and working both within uh, uh, and working within the world, right? So like anti-Vichy, anti-Nazi, NDP, DSA, these are not fringe religious outlets. These are places that Catholics who, in my opinion, and here's my argument, really want to do real politics, which means do it in the world, you know, ad, you know, ad seculorum. Um, to, that's where politics, I think, is done in the public square. And there's just a lot of uh, work for Catholics to do and that Catholics have done. Uh, one, of the, one of the, along with Mounier, uh, Charles Sailors has this very short essay called um, The Agony of Economic Man. And I think it's from 1973. And it's from a collection of NDP commemorative essays called Essays of the Left. And I remember reading that very early age, very formative age. It formed basically a concept of what I would later come to learn. We have a word for it called neoliberalism or the homo economicus, you know, economic man. Um, but Taylor expressed that for me then. And at the time, I didn't know Taylor, the famous Charles Taylor, sources yeah. of the self-secular age. But I was introduced to him as really an intellectual on the Canadian left, who's also Catholic, also uh, working within the NDP. So the, the the why socialism question for me has a lot to do with personalism, has a lot to do with my intellectual formation, but it actually has a lot to do with who I want to caucus with, who I want to associate with, and what historical movements globally within politics I um, I see myself um, working within. And I will say that one thing that distinguishes the democratic socialists from the communists and from certainly the, the Maoists and the Leninists and all the others is that we're kind of like not liberal we're pretty liberal friendly. <laughs> um, and uh, and I think this also distinguishes a Catholic socialist from, for instance, an integralist who might have otherwise leftist uh, opinions, but has a really hard stance against, you know, modernism or liberalism. Uh, you know, I, I frankly, I, I think liberalism is a much more difficult thing to understand. And 
it is the only game in town within liberal democracies. And that's probably a good thing, all things considered. Um, and so my, even when it comes to political economy, for instance, this isn't abolish capitalism, uh, abolish wage labor, socialism. This is really democratic socialism that sees a place for shared markets, for private markets, for uh, cooperatives, for, you know, for a lot of stuff like that. So mine, I think is a very pragmatic, um, but very historical and very concrete. Like if you want to ask me the details of like, how does one live in Canada and vote in the United States and be an active member in the NDP and the DSA democratic adjacent, like, you know, I, we can get into my writing here closely. We can get into my work within the Texas, which is the state I vote in, you know, that's how I like to talk about politics, frankly, is politically, you know, mm -hmm. um, issues, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you're saying that you wouldn't consider this to be like a liberal position, but it's liberal friendly, you're saying. Yeah, what I mean by that is that like um, uh, a lot of a lot of the left, and in particular, I think what what a lot of communists or what a lot of socialists who um, who are probably trending harder uh, to, to the left, so like the PSL, for instance, the People's Liberation Solidarity Party, for instance, the Gloria Lariva uh, folks. Um, yeah, they 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 see an incompatibility thesis between mainstream liberalism, the Democratic Party, um, and, uh, and and their politics. The DSA, I think, has distinguished itself, especially recently, of not being uh, uh, unable to work within and with um, uh, both grassroots, organizers, anarchists, PSL, if the issue comes up, uh, especially when it comes to labor and unions and stuff, but also see a place for themselves within kind of the mainstream Democratic Party in terms of carving out a left wing to what has been a mostly right wing Democratic Party, you know, historically, mm -hmm. um, well, just in general. So that's what I mean by liberal friendly, is that um, for me, liberalism, both philosophically, but also in terms of real politic, isn't sort of a, um, uh, it's not, it's not a, a, an incommensurability thesis against the idea of socialism, I take to, into, into view. Okay, so then what do you make of the so-called post-liberal position that I see more and more Catholics taking, whether integralist or, you know, Democrat, um, what's it called, American Solidarity Party brand kind of post-liberalism? I mean, I'd like to know more about what they mean uh, when they say that. So that term has been used, especially within Protestant theology for decades. Mm -hmm. um, um, Bill Plaker, uh, a theologian um, working out of Protestant theology, popularized uh, that term in the 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, and what it meant, as far as I could tell from that dialogue, was a sort of uh, a lot of what now post-secularism now means for a lot of Protestant uh, discourse. Um, and uh, Catholics have taken up the expression post-liberal. I think its first Catholic iteration may have been by Bishop Barron when he was still, before he was a bishop in his like 2006 or 2007 book, uh, The Priority of Christ, I think. Um, that, to my recollection, at least, is the first time I can map out the term. Um, this is me to try and show good faith, right? Like, I don't want to just bash. I've tried to do my homework and I've tried very hard to understand what this means. Uh, frankly, though, outside of those little sketchings and tracings, I don't think the post-liberal uh, uh, movement has done a particularly effective job of communicating what it is that post-liberalism means. And moreover, and probably more importantly, um, what it actually looks like. It reminds me a lot of the problems with distributism, which look, I was like everybody else, you know, everyone at 18 should be a distributist, right? Because Belloc is for teenagers and that's is, that's exactly right. But you should grow up, you know? And one of the reasons you grow up is you you ask questions like, you know, you know the classic question, how does one build an airplane uh, <laughs> as a distributist or other questions like, you know, uh, how do we deal with the society that we have now with, with a, attention to the common good? And I think that, you know, post-liberalism is, is in my mind, probably something of a word seeking a definition it's more of a feeling. It's more of a of a of an expression of disdain for any number of things, whether it's you know a kind of a Catholic owned the libs brand or something. It's an um, aesthetic, I think. It, yeah, it could be. Maybe it's an aesthetic, which is very fascist friendly. Uh, um, 
attractive, of course, because that's the whole point of an aesthetic, hopefully. But nonetheless, like, I'm not particularly, I mean, I'm almost 40 years old. So it's like, I'm not 18 anymore. So I want to caucus with people. I want to go to meetings. I want to talk about issues, uh, whether they be infrastructure, water, housing, um, uh, uh, material, nutritional poverty, you know. So to me, that's what that's where my politics really uh, are now. So I have very little patience. <laughs> and the politics, by the way, of socialists like Mounier and others, you know, the 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 opposition to the Vichy French or the opposition to Nazism was not an aesthetic. <laughs> it was survival. It was existential in the most basic lowercase e sense. So that's my reading of the post-liberal stuff is that like, you know, the burden is really on them to to uh, if they want to bring a new political term into market, then the burden is on them to communicate what it means by that and also point to some organizational and institutional places where we can go to these meetings, where we could learn more about it, where we can do the work of post-liberalism. You know, um, Catholic worker, for instance, as a lifestyle is yeah. definitely an ethic and a lifestyle and they have their, their saints and literally they may have a saint pretty soon. Yeah. Um, uh, I pray and hope, you know, servant of God, Dorothy Day, pray for us. The the thing I love about the Catholic workers and they do frustrate me, my, my, my younger brother is a Catholic worker and uh, and it's it can be maddening, I'll admit, for all the reasons I stated here. You can see I'm a very kind of just normie, boring, boomerish, you know, guy professor, whatever, just all the worst things you can imagine wrapped up into one. But but one thing that I really admire about Catholic worker is they can take you by the hand and walk over to the day home where they're feeding yeah. people. They can show you the concrete work they're doing. They, you can enter into solidarity with them on issues that you care about in really concrete and manifest ways. I haven't seen yet where that exists for post-liberals. Yeah, so I mean, I feel like I'm caught in this position even though I'm much older than 18 at this point. Um, I'm attracted to this whole post-liberal idea because I don't know. And part of it's aesthetic. Part of it, I just think it's cool and countercultural, which is, you know, kind of dumb and self-indulgent. But also, like, I feel the need to have um, integrity of thought. Like, distributism is a much better idea than all the liberal options that are out there. Uh, Post-liberalism is, it just makes more sense. It's more human. But it's not a real livable option unless you're a Catholic yeah. worker and not everyone's going to drop everything and go to a Catholic worker farm. Sure. But it's like, what do I do with the fact that I have this attachment to the integrity of ideals, but also realize like this is being idealistic. And, and I remember I asked you for a quote when I was doing an article for um, NCR on like third parties and you were saying something about like, you know, at the end of the day, we have to be realist. Like we have to look at like, what are the real options? Mm -hmm. I have a very hard time doing that maybe because I am an idealistic millennial, but like, I don't know, what do you say to someone who is very attached to having the right ideas, even though they're not livable? Like, sure. like, I don't want to make that sacrifice of entering into reality because I know I have to compromise the integrity of thought. Yeah, I mean, that's a suit. I mean, I think that's just a really generous, um, you know, proposition in, in relation to the, the admittedly very provocative answer I gave to your first question of the why socialism. Um, and then the why, and then what about post-secularism uh, follow up? I mean, look, I'm, I'm an old millennial. I'm an 82. So I'm like on that doorstep. I just kind of behave and have in somewhat sense recently adopted the posture of a less interesting uh, uh, boomer. And maybe that's because complacence that I got tenure in 2019 or, you know, maybe there's some, you know, psychoanalytic reasons or whatever. I don't know. The, the, the um, but the question is a serious one. Um, and I have to say, and, and you already know this because of that quote you got, like, this has not always been my position. Yeah. You know, I, I took, I took a very, in fact, I only voted third party. Um, my very first vote was cast for Alan Keyes. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and my my voting record is all over the map in terms of left, right, and center, third party um, uh, abstentions, you know, the McIntyre <laughs> option. Uh, it's only been uh, somewhat recently, in fact, that I've taken this very realist position. In fact, realism, social realism was one of the planks of my 
two-tier argument for voting for, Joe for voting for Joe Biden, right? So I say that just to show sympathy, right? So um, uh, it took a lot, you know, I was a lot older than 18, if I'm being honest, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> along the way. Um, nonetheless, having said all those things and having granted all that uh, um, ground of, of hopefully understanding and mutualism, I do have to say that, like, um, there are two problems, I think, with the assumption that one can't keep one's ideals or that the ideals of this aesthetical view are more attractive. So it's one thing for ideas to be, some ideas to be more attractive than others. I can't dispute that. <laughs> what makes ideas attractive? I mean, that's so difficult, right? But I can say that um, liberalism is not, a, is not a monolithic tradition whatsoever. Um, and whether we're talking going back into classical liberalism or into Locke, or if we want to go back to the very foundations of political philosophy, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas, and Aquinas has this really cool idea, the dominus sui, the sense of the sense of of it's almost like the seed of of the idea that would become autonomy and liberalism. You know, like in other words, ideas. If we're serious about them, ideas, uh, and I think we have to abandon some of the aesthetical affectations of attraction. But if we're serious about the ideas and we get down into them, just like let's go over to a place and feed some people. Let's grab some books, break them open, find a page, get a good translation. You know, at that level of ideas, and this is my biggest problem. A lot of idealists aren't idealists because they're not doing that kind of work with the ideas they claim to be serious about. And if you're not doing that kind of work, then I don't think anyone is is allowed to call themselves an idealist. They're a pseudo idealist. They're entertaining themselves with a kind of intellectual affectation, but they're not doing the work. But if you do the work, what you find, I think, is A, liberalism is not a self-contained tradition. It has antecedents that take us well into the ancients um, and are anticipated, if not built upon, um, Catholic intellectual tradition, which of course is built upon Hellenism, which is of course, you know, built upon other things whatsoever. Um, but on the other hand, that liberalism evolves and changes and enters into very different kinds of dialogues and internal disputes. So like, here's a very simple, like, you know, two liberalisms that I would encourage those who find liberalism unattractive to check out. Late million liberalism. Like you could just read on liberty if you want to, but right. even beyond that, like I just think late million liberalism is actually very different from Lockeanism. It's very uh, uh, aware of the challenges to political economy made by Marx and others in the 19th century. Um, it sits really nicely beside people like Belloc and Chesterton. For one, they're all Brits, you know, more or less around the same time. Um, and then Rawls. You know, I mean, I find that a lot of people who are bashing liberalism couldn't take you through the veil of ignorance argument and Rawls step by step. Mm -hmm. Well, come on. I mean, you know, or justice is fairness argument, you know, some of those things. Now, in terms of the real politic and not the political philosophy, yeah, there is something kind of uninspiring about the status quo. No one wants to be status quo because it's not cool. But again, like, are we in high school or are we actually being serious? I think one of the reasons why liberalism is status quo is precisely because of its the flexibility of its ideas and the capacity for some of its ideas to even diverge in radically different positions. For me, the tradition of personalism and in particular Catholic socialism, but also just democratic socialism in general, is this real evolution, especially after the failure of Stalinist, Leninist, Maoist communism to say, no, liberal democracy is not a, um, it's not something we can just throw away. Um, totalitarianism is not going to be the answer here. Yet, nonetheless, there are collectivist aspects that are going to be critical of some of the articles of faith of the liberal Democrats um, who we see as, as having an important way of life to offer. And now we enter, need to enter into that messy dispute. And, you know, to me, that's like, um, that's where the rubber really hits the road. And to me, that's what realism means, not only at the level of let's feed some people or what have you, but also at the level of like, let's get serious with the books. Like if we want to be idealists, then let's grab some, some book spines and let's, let's sit down and break bread and really hash this out. That's the work I don't see post-liberals as doing at all, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like that position I can get with because again, at a certain point, like you do have to grow up, you have to mature and sacrifice like your aesthetic affectation, which I know I have to do at some point. But um, 
I do still feel like even if we're going to be realists and deal with like the actual circumstances we're in, I would never want to sacrifice like the prospect of like critiquing the ideas of the status quo, like to critique, um, like I would never want to go wholeheartedly along with it as much as it may be prag more pragmatic to do so, because I don't know, like I just think about Dorothy Day and like the whole idea of the clarification of thought because like to me, that's so crucial to have a clear understanding of what's at stake and what are the problems with it, you know? So like, I would hope that at a certain point I can come to the place right there. I can embrace the tension between like, okay, I'm living in this culture. I'm living in a society which requires certain things of me. And yet I'm detached from it. Like I, I understand what the flaws are and I'm, I'm able to talk about that freely. I'm able to acknowledge like, yeah, like this is problematic, you know? Yeah, I just feel sure. like when we wholeheartedly go along with the program, knowing that there's so many, there's, you know, just so much cognitive dissonance. There. I think so. I also think sometimes the program just gets a really bad rap, right? So like, for yeah. instance, one of the one of the the ongoing uh, accusations almost about liberalism, especially in the academy and in universities, which is kind of where I live, uh, literally, <laughs> I live South Campus CBC, um, is, you know, that like all professors think identical and stuff like that. And like, I can see the truthiness of that claim. It's been made for a long time. I think mm -hmm. uh, William F. Buckley made the claim in like 52 and God and Man at Yale. And basically, that book gets rewritten every every decade, you know, and people think it's this radical. Here's the thing. Counterculture is actually very status quo. Like people coming out and saying the libs need to be owned because they're boring and they don't do the right things. Actually, that's just as repetitive and status quo to me as um, improving housing conditions for the poor, you know, which has also been an ongoing project by, you know, liberals in general, at least in the United States and, and, and other places. So like, to me, it's like, I'm not so convinced that counterculture is nearly as radical as people think, because again, I teach Plato uh, every term and Socrates is countercultural. And these uh, stories we're reading are 2,400 years old. Um, for me, what really matters is less about kind of using status quo as a put down and trying to get countercultural, but it's really about, again, not only the realism of external conditions and concrete situations, but also the realism of ideas. Like there are actually, I think, some radical ideas that we could um, treat with maybe more respect um, and and find our ways with. And one of the things I pointed out in my case whenever I debated Trent that I kind of really regret got ignored by everyone was I showed how like both Benedict XVI and John Paul II had a very deep and very concrete, they could name the exact concepts, uh, appreciation for the thought of, of Marx. Uh, and not only for um, uh, the thought in general, but for specific concepts. So for John Paul II, he's like, yeah, I don't know about his anthropology, but the the place of the idea, the concept of alienation in his thought is absolutely central, yeah. right? Uh, Benedict XVI uh, uh, actually probably takes more from his political economy yeah. than John Paul II does. Um, uh, and, and, and to me, those deep appreciations, um, Alistair McIntyre's, you know, um, Marxism and Christianity, um, Herbert McCabe, obviously, you know, a full-blown, you know, Dominican Marxist. What fascinates me here is, is not so much that they're going against the tide of most Catholics aren't supposed to like Marx or they're going with it or whatever. But what matters to me is that I actually just think the problem of alienation in Marx or out of Marx is just a really great way to talk about a central haunting problem for people today and that people can feel in their stomachs and that when we listen to the radio when we listen to top 40 music mm -hmm. we're hearing being spoken about and sung about and we're suffering from and in my mind every light that can shed itself upon that problem and bring us into encounters and communities to talk about it is worthwhile and ultimately from from god and so for me that's really where the rubber hits the road one of the problems i don't like is there's a lot of obstacles to getting to what i just said because i have to explain to everyone why in the world are you talking so much about marx why in the world are you trying to focus on the little times that jp2 and benedict 16 talk nicely about marx are you a marxist are you a socialist do you want to murder millions of people you see and it's but yeah. it, it's so ridiculous you know but i i don't trust that the counterculture though is counterculture i think counterculture 
culture is more status quo many times than, than the status quo. I find more radical these days, at least for me mm -hmm. in my life, I'm finding a lot more radical things like how do we solve a problem of like infrastructure? I find that radical now. Yeah. <laughs> I also love my vacuum cleaner. So like maybe I'm just becoming a very boring, uninspiring <laughs> person, right? Um, no, I mean, I, I definitely agree with the Marx thing because when you actually read Marx and not just look at communism as like a social political mm -hmm. phenomenon, like the guy's a genius. Like he really had his finger on so many issues. At the very least he was well read. Like I just love reading Capital Volume 1 yeah. in part because of its. I often track all of its references to religion, whether it's mm -hmm. literary and in some cases direct. Um, you can read it ethically or morally. And it's very moralistic. I mean, yeah. you can't, he can't say half the stuff he says without a really basic concept of evil. He uses the language of sin. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's really, it's just, it's just fun. I mean, you know, it's fun for all the reasons. Some of my friends say that I never want to read Plato because they hear I'm, I'm so excited. And I'm like, I don't want you to be a Platonist. I just think that like yeah. questions like, you know, um, how do you know, you know, the Minos paradox, you know, of like, you know, um, uh, how can I know that I don't know something? How will I know what it is when I find it? If I don't know what it is, you know, mm -hmm. how do I go hunting for an animal that I've never seen before? I won't know what to shoot at, you know, yeah. that's a cool problem. It's, you know, and, and maybe this is just me saying I'm a philosopher and I like these problems. Um, but I think any idealist should have not only an attraction to an aesthetic, but a real attraction to actual rational conceptual situations that are difficult and that are perplexing and that are, you know, these aporias of thought. Yeah. So, and since you brought up the folks in socialism, I want to go back to Rerum Novarum and mm -hmm. Leo the Thirteenth because mm -hmm. that's where I get most of my hangups about the socialist position. Because first, like he explicitly, I mean, first of all, he's critical of communism, but he does talk about socialism, social welfare, and whatnot. Um, I think like my biggest concern is like when it comes to subsidiarity, this whole idea that we solve problems at the most basic level first. Primarily, I, I mean, for me, I think it's because that's where people's needs are best understood. Like there's more possibility of an encounter with the person. I mean, speaking of personalism, but also the reality that like the further we removed we are from the individual, like the more possibility that original sin can go unreined and really do violence to the individual to create real destruction. Um, so I don't know, like, what do you say to that? Like, what do you say about the potential of, I don't know, I guess this allowing the state to have that much power to make economic decisions for i don't know i'm not i'm probably not framing it well but like, no no it's a, no it's, it's an absolutely real uh, uh danger and i think the main thing here is is just to admit that look every every political orientation has its under and over determinations right mm -hmm. so um uh, uh socialism underdetermined uh, uh one finds a kind of communitarian anarchism in my opinion that's not the worst thing mm -hmm. socialism overdetermined uh basically um accelerates into the excesses of you know totalitarian communism, right? Mm -hmm. In some sense, I think socialism is an attempt to, to hold a place between a broadly statist concept of the good life mm -hmm. and a stateless concept of the good life, between a kind of libertarian um, anarchistic position on the one hand and between a, uh, a, a sort of status. Now, the communists listening, I don't know if you have communists listening, but the mm -hmm. communists listening are going to reach through the screen and grab me by the collar and say, the state is not uh, eternal the state is always temporary you know okay great but socialists have seen enough totalitarian states to say that even the temporary ones kind of sucked so we don't want <laughs> we don't even want that temporary state um that's what the tankies you know go into um but to me i guess that's the, the main point is just to say that like i think any thinking person should not be a partisan to their political ideas but should be very sensitive to where their under and over determinations are having said that 
for me, um, the principle of subsidiarity, and in particular, the concerns, the legitimate concerns during, you know, the 1890s, by these, you have to remember that the the, the internationalist conventions were, were happening uh, during this period of time, where the, the workers of the world unite kind of mantra was coming together. And the church was watching this in addition to a number of other global movements, um, you know, after, you know, with the French Revolution and the, and the other revolutions, you know, in the rearview mirror. And basically everything that looked like a large internationalist, collectivist, populist movement uh, pretty much gave the church the willies because <laughs> they tended to be anti-religious. They tended to be very aggressive, if not overtly hostile to the institutional church all the way down to its people. Um, what I think is amazing is that nonetheless, having all those concerns, the church, much like the First Vatican Council, but in particular in Rerum Navarum, that the church said, no, we're going to enter into the fray. We're not going to stand outside anymore. And that he actually uh, took some very, very almost identical positions to the ones being debated on the floor of the of the internationalist conventions uh, by Marxists and socialists and communists and people around the world mm -hmm. and created things like Catholic action um, that became um, allies when they could work in solidarity with um, with those movements as well. And uh, but you're absolutely right. The, um, the, the question of the state is a very serious, I think, question. And I think that one of my problems with integralism and with a lot of the authoritarian um, impulses of certain post-liberal uh, folks is their comfort with a concept of the state that, that is maximalist or in some sense, in my sense, violates that principle of subsidiarity. Mm -hmm. I can't be a socialist without being a personalist and I can't be a personalist and a socialist without being a democratic socialist or mm -hmm. a social democrat. Demos gratos means people power. The demos there is the core. Mm -hmm. And one of the beautiful things of the Catholic understanding of the person, we see this in some of the communio early stuff that uh, got sketched out by von Balthasar and by Ratzinger at the time. Uh, our concept of the person is this beautiful pluralistic concept. Mm -hmm. We understand it in Trinitarian terms. And so the, the person themselves holds within themselves this kind of public. Um, and so where we find a person, we find a kind of state this is as classical as Plato, right? Where the soul was divided into classes and we saw this civic unity of the self, right? And really political philosophy is born from that, that platonic sense of the, the, the civics of the soul moving from the Republic into Augustine into Aquinas all the way through. So this is how I kind of sneakily account for my socialism, my demos gratos uh, within this principle of subsidiarity. If we understand the principle of subsidiarity through a unit of one, which is a un which is a civic one, a plural one, mm -hmm. right? Then I think there's a place there for a creative tension, but nonetheless a constructive engagement with the notion of the state that is relegated by analogy uh, into that. But again, this isn't like this is this is very kind of analogia. This is analogical Catholic yeah. metaphysics. There's nothing here that's particularly modern or or newfangled. Um, but I think that Catholic socialists, um, especially the personalists, have always had almost an advantage over their secular comrades because I think we actually have a lot more conceptual firepower whenever it comes to making this. Whereas in a secular socialist, they kind of do have to frankly um, admit to some positive notion of the state that isn't, that is external and is not internal. And that external state, as opposed to the internal one that I just described analogically, I think it is a problem for, for Catholics. And I think that the Pope, the Popes from Rome Navarum all the way through history are right whenever they uh, are concerned with that. Mm -hmm. Pope Francis even does that in Laudato Si on a different issue, but with he, he notes the, the problem of both an anthropocentric and a biocentric approach to ecology. Uh, and he calls for a kind of lowercase i integral <laughs> approach, um, which what he means there is neither biocentric nor anthropocentric, both biocentric and anthropocentric, right? 
Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what we can, I think that's when like solidarity and subsidiarity, when we have that beautiful marriage of the two concepts, then I think Catholic social teaching really begins to bloom. And there's no indication to me that socialism and especially Catholic socialists have had any problems in that garden, you know, historically. Mm-hmm. So then the other question that kind of ties into this. So he's very critical of what he calls like the social welfare state, because mm-hmm. from what I understand, he's saying that it compromises the the freedom of the individual, but also their sense of responsibility and participation in, you know, um, the civic sphere. So what would you say to someone who's associates socialism with this social welfare state? And again, like this compromise of the person's freedom and their sense of responsibility. I mean, the question of what to do about the dole is one of the oldest questions in in you know, liberal societies. And um, believe it or not, uh, Marxist socialists, uh, liberals, uh, conservatives uh, have not always held a kind of ideologically consistent position on the question of the dole or the question of social welfare. (laughs) In fact, uh, you will find um, many uh, forms of social conservatism, which on the basis of of, uh, family emphasis and things like that, uh, have much stronger um, uh, 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 social programs and welfare around, you know, uh, dole type systems. Um, the question of the dole is the question, that's the way Marx talks about it or he yeah. talks about it. So I'm saying it that way, antiquated. Um, I mean, I would say two things. One is that the question of the dole in uh, 1892, I promise you, is not the question of UBI today. Okay. And Pope Francis and Let Us Dream literally endorses the UBI, uh, universal basic income. Um, uh, I'm not, I don't think he does that in ignorance of the concerns of the excesses of, 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 of the dole and of forms of social welfare. Um, but look, I mean, um, the, uh, the Catholic church has not only, uh, I think developed a robust, uh, understanding of the common good, but we have some of the strongest institutions that work with, uh, both national and international, uh, uh governments and states, um, providing social welfare for people using, uh, both tax, uh, uh, monies, uh, international efforts uh, from states. So like Catholics are really in no position, I don't think, to make any robust efforts to talk about this until they investigate how Catholic charities, how any number of NGOs, how any number of religious orders work alongside and with uh, states' uh, taxation-based uh, 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 revenues to, to, to literally provide um, uh, not only health care, but many other kinds of things. And you know what? I'm proud <laughs> as a Roman Catholic. Uh, I'm proud of this. Uh, I think we all should be proud of this. I think we should all uh, pitch in as well. Uh, and you can't feel those emotions of religious pride and participate without in some sense endorsing, I think, um, the non-problematic elements of that teaching. And then you go to the Catholic social teaching and then you go to 1892 and then you go to Roman Navarum and you sort it out from there. But you, I mean, this is my realism maybe kicking in here, right? Mm-hmm. But, but the point of the fact is that, you know, um, social welfare is a wonderful thing um, uh, uh, right now in a lot of cases. Is it abused? It kind of disincentivize any number of things. Yeah, there's one thing. Now the communist is kicking down the door saying, don't forget, Sam, talk about socialism for the rich. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember that to the extent that we're talking about the, the the problems of social welfare, we have to think about tax credits to corporations. We have to think about the um, the abilities for the rich to uh, not only forego um, paying taxes, but also to privatize public goods like water, uh, any number of things like that. And so those questions, I think, are actually the thornier questions um, that a person using the um, aversion to social welfare and rerum nabarum doesn't find a nice default situation to be sitting in afterwards. Mm -hmm. So then um, fast forward to Pope Benedict. I've heard a lot of different takes. I think it was on Deus Caritas Est because Mm. he does have a section where he talks about democratic socialism. And I see some people say, look, it's proof that the Pope is endorsing it. And then I see other people saying like, oh, no, but he's actually saying Catholics can't be democratic socialists. So what's your take on that? Yeah, I used I, I use the quote in my case. Um, I, I don't actually I actually don't think it's in 
Deus Caritas Est. I think it's in a, it's in a, I think it's actually in a first things, um, like one-off thing he wrote. Really? Was it yeah. That? I think it's, it's like, a, so, so the context of the article has nothing to do with socialism. He's mm. talking about basically religion in the West. Okay. And, and the context for that is it happens right around the time he has this uh, book length dialogue with Jürgen Habermas uh, oh, called Habermas. the dialectics of secularization. Yeah. Right. And so the question on his mind, this is where I think both of those sides are frankly trying to, to cherry pick that quote and, and raise it as some kind of a flag. Mm. Uh, we don't, we shouldn't do that. It's lazy. It's obnoxious. Um, it, it's, it's frankly, it's just, it's stupid. Um, what's on the Pope's mind during this time in both this article and as we see in his extended dialogue with the critical theorist, Marxist, atheist, Jürgen Habermas, <laughs> is um, what is secularization going to do to religion, both as a cultural form, all the way to uh, its ecclesiastical effects on, on the church in Europe, right, mm -hmm. in Western Europe. Um, and um, it's within that context that he talks about the secular stuff that was able that 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 is despite itself able to, seems to have certain impulses for the stuff that matters to Catholics, right? Mm -hmm. And so within that context, he says, well, uh, like he's not very positive. He doesn't he doesn't have to see a bunch of people who are willing to work with Catholics. It's a fairly dim view um, mm -hmm. of the situation, and in that dim view, he names. The, the 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 social democracy which is exactly what i talked about earlier yeah. it would be the mounier anti-nazism it would be the orange revolutions of central europe it would be catholic action it would be you know in italy it would be the anti-fascist you know coalitions that were built around um socialism he's referring to all this historically within the history of europe as the um the potential allies of uh of catholics mm -hmm. and i just think he's historically right about that mainly because there were a lot of Catholics in those groups. Now, there were also a lot of Catholics in the fascist groups, but notice he doesn't see them as allies, right? He there were lots of Catholics in the, in the liberal groups. He doesn't name them as allies. He only names the ones by association in this. And the context of that can only be understood whenever we are willing to sort of really get into the weeds of, um, of, of basically that deep dive on European history um, and that assessment of, of, of you know, religion in Europe that he's doing, everyone else trying to turn this into a banner or a flag to fly is um, really abusing the our Pope's generosity to make these kinds of remarks at all. I mean, I, it, it really, I think is offensive. Um, now, fast forward to Francis's comments, I think in like 2016, where he, the quote that everybody wants uh, or wants to really hate is Francis's quote, where he says that it's the communists who truly understood the gospel because they're always on the side of the poor. Yeah. Now, that, 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 even that remark, though, I think can only be understood from a Latin American, South American yeah, perspective, exactly. whenever we understand, well, who are the communists that Francis is talking about? Is it Stalin? Is it Mao? Is, no, it's not. He's talking about the rise of the Workers' Party in Brazil. He's talking about the coup in Argentina. He's talking about Latin American politics. Yeah. Um, and and uh, and so to me, this is kind of my very boring assessment of a lot of these sort of you know cherry picking quotes. Is that mm -hmm. um, we should show more respect to both ourselves intellectually, but also to to our church and our tradition, than to try to you know fly a, a quick flag up of our mast of whatever it is. You know, the moment we seem to find something within an entire essay, an entire period of time, an entire person's thought that suddenly seems to endorse all of a sudden for no reason mm -hmm. uh, what we think. I mean, come on, we should grow up. Yeah. So the last thing I would want to ask. So I don't know, I, I hear a lot of people talk about a possible collaboration or an overlap between, I guess we could say far left democratic socialists, and 
I guess right-wing populists or people who are disillusioned sure. with this state of things. Sure. Um, people who, I guess, I think the overlap would be like an interest in the working class, the needs of the worker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's your take on that? Do you think there is a possible collaboration? What would be yeah. the amount of it? All that. Gosh, this is this is this is a difficult question that I have. Uh, I'm, I'm right now a, a friend of mine. He's in a, a local philosopher, anti-fascist, uh, communist, who really only wants to talk to Catholics um, mm -hmm. about politics uh, uh, besides his own brand. Um, and he um, has one of these lefty presses that he got me a copy of a um, a working group in the Philippines of kind of a radical revolutionary uh, Filipino working group mm -hmm. that read the the compendium of Catholic social teaching and wrote a um, uh, wrote a commentary on the compendium of Catholic social teaching by a radical anti-fascist communist um, uh, uh, revolutionary group in the Philippines writing under kind of like a pen name. Mm -hmm. um, the reason I say this is as I read this, your question really rings in my ears because not only are they bringing to it, uh, well, for one, there's the cultural comfort of a Filipino reading the church as a secular, but from a culturally Catholic yeah. place where like, I'm kind of astounded that they seem to be better interpreters in some cases mm -hmm. of Catholic social teaching than certain, you know, Roman Catholics writing and talking, even not just certain, I'm not talking about my enemies. I mean, better than me <laughs> in many cases. Um, and so that's been kind of humbling, but also perplexing. I don't understand why, but your question about, you know, the alliance of, of right-wing populist um, movements focused on, on the working poor and the, uh, and then the radical left, this is, this is, I think, the question that we're living in right now. Mm -hmm. um, and um, on the one hand, I think that there needs to be a really um, dogmatic position taken by the left that says we can only enter into solidarity um, on like workers-based or the poor or whatever um, in good faith, right? Uh, it can't become a sort of class identity politics sort of a thing, right? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it's undeniable to me that the success of right-wing populism, right-wing authoritarianism um, with the poor um, is um, a live example of that, you know, lumpen proletariat problem that's existed in leftism since Marx, which is that, frankly, um, those who are classed as the oppressed uh, are often not particularly interested in investing themselves in a project of social change. So to say that your work will be in the spirit of freedom and democracy and all these other kinds of things as someone who doesn't represent those classes is nothing but a sort of sophisticated form of elitism, mm -hmm. you know, and I think this is really dangerous territory conceptually. I think Catholics love, well, I think a lot of post-liberal Catholics love to take advantage of its uh, weak spots because it reveals some of the ironies of liberalism, of mm -hmm. democracy, uh, of civic society. And, there, and you can take real joy in kind of throwing rocks through those windows and laughing at it. Ha ha ha, I just broke the stained glass window. Yeah. The, the issue there, though, is that those paradoxes are not unique to, to liberalism. And whenever we turn that gun around and we take it into like dogmatic propositions of the faith, teach, church's authority on faith and morals and stuff, we quickly see that we belong to a tradition where we do not necessarily assume out of hand that coercion, the law, and those kind of things are antithetical to freedom insofar as they're directed towards the good, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that whenever we add the ironies of our faith to the ironies of secular public and popular life, I think there we see actually an interesting intersection. I'm speculating here, but it's 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 something that as I read this book and as, as your question rings in my head, I think about a lot. Mm -hmm. A lot of poor, quote unquote, uneducated, 
uh, nations, people, whatever, uh, are are religious. Yeah, and um, and they are clearly the beneficiaries of a kind of social program of the left, and they are famously, in many cases, uh, uh, opposed to those programs when they arrive, or very um, happy to take advantage and exploit them as they can when they come. Um, we see this in the so-called global south, um, and of course in the global north, whatever exploitation, everyone's happy to exploit them in any number of yeah. ways, uh, so on and so forth. So I'm not saying there's clean hands anywhere, but this conundrum of, of, um, kind of a failure of the will at the level of kind of that the demos of demos gratos, the, the, the fact that people sometimes actually lack the power to advocate for themselves. Um, the answer to this, since Plato, again, is, is actually education. Hmm. And this is where education actually, I think, has a, a um, like, it's it's right. I think it's absolutely appropriate that parents should be going to school board meetings and losing their minds because that that it they understand uh, the live wire. Now, are they being influenced by people like Chris Rufo and by money from the Heritage Foundation? Yeah, of course, of course. But the point, though, is the matters is that whether it's civil rights integration, Brown v. Board of Education, the school questions of education, questions of how um, uh, the demos, uh, how their souls are formed, that I think is the ground zero that doesn't so much solve your your question, but that gives us an insight into how to work with the question. You know, Paulo Freire in Brazil, he was, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 mentored by by Helder Camara, a, a very famous Catholic socialist and bishop. Um, uh, and he went into favelas of Brazil, you know, just the poorest mm -hmm. of the poorest uh, areas in, in the world to teach people how to read and write. Yeah. Alphabetization. Alphabetization. And a lot of people are like, oh, he like believed like, 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 like book it, you know, uh, you know, mm -hmm. reading rainbow. The reason he was doing it was because there was a poll requisite of being able to pass a basic literary stand, literacy wow. standard in order to vote. And that was how the ruling classes maintained their majority over the top of these millions and millions of not only poor, but also historically, remember Brazil is where slavery was ended, the, la the last mm -hmm. state to end slavery, also mostly black favelas. Mm -hmm. He went into those places and spaces, taught people how to read in order to give them the ability to vote. And I think it's such a, it was, it's almost like, it was like, it was like, uh, it was like the solution to the question you're asking almost coming to life through education, through alphabetization. Yeah. But when you dig down further into Freire's ideas, it wasn't just a real politic lever. He did get exiled because of its political effects um, in, in the late fifties. Uh, no, no, no. In the, in the, in the mid sixties um, is when he got exiled first to Bolivia, then to Chile. And then he started traveling Switzerland, the United States. But below all that, we had his theological foundations where he saw this primordial relation between the word and the world, mm -hmm. between the logos of John and the Ruach of Genesis. Yep. And, you know, for me as, as a Catholic, as a socialist, as someone who cares about education, as someone who really perceives in the question you've asked something really difficult and really prescient and talk about realism. I mean, that is as real as it gets, I think. Um, I think Freire's approach to, to see education and reading and literacy in this very broad, but also very realistic and concrete way. I think that's how we attack the question uh, through education. Um, and of course the question from there, then we fight over that. Who's education, who gets to teach, who gets to decide all that stuff, but we're gonna fight over that anyway. But as long, if we can make that more explicit, that would make me happy. Yeah, I mean, that's a helpful way to look at it because I don't know, for me, I asked this question because I don't know, like my priorities at this point, and again, maybe I need to mature a little bit more, are not primarily political. It's mostly like I'm interested in the cultural, the aesthetic question. Because for me, like I grew up very much in a super uh, bourgeois liberal bubble, like the epitome of privilege. And I saw how existentially, aesthetically, is like super vapid. So 
socialism, populism. Politically, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's not, for me, that's not the biggest question. What attracts me to these positions is that there's a critique of the status quo. There's a critique of what I perceive to be the vapidness. And I think, again, politically, perhaps there's not too much of an overlap, but I think somebody needs to be asking these questions about the elitism, this kind of bourgeois aesthetic sense of, I don't know, this bourgeois sense of reality that's can become very stifling after a while. I, I, I think when you frame it that way, and I think if people would, would use bourgeois in that sense to be what they mean by status quo, mm -hmm. um, the, um, the, the classes of society that do not have to have their souls stirred, neither by God nor by existential threats to, mm -hmm. to their life, you know, those, the people who sleep basically on Valium at night or whatever, you know, that, that, that's a social expression that it would be really unfortunate, but I'm suspecting maybe it is, if that was the draw of post-liberalism. It's like, oh, we can work on that, but that's not this way. Like there's, yeah. look behind me and those who are listening to this can't see what you can see, but behind me are my guitars. And so like, look, I, I am I am with you as an aesthete, right? What I care about the most, what 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 for me is my kind of atomic uh, uh, element for my investment in both education and in politics mm -hmm. is music. And it was for Plato too, by the way. Plato's Republic is primarily about musical and physical education. It's not about really about anything else, really. He goes ad, ad nauseum about how the guardians need to learn, not learn too much minor music because they don't want it, but they need to learn some so they're not too scared of it. And like, and so this, this idea that the temperaments and the soul is built through an aesthetic education. I mean, now we're speaking, I think the same language and, and I don't think you should be self-effacing about that. And I would add that one of the real failures of the kind of scientific Marxists and the, I would say, um, uh, Philistine left are those who have really forgotten or conveniently ignored the fact that the poetics of the left has always been in union songs and protest songs and liberation songs and, and spiritual music. Yeah. Um, you know, Martin Luther King, the last thing he said before he died is he asked to have the, um, uh, the song, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, uh, played that night, which of course a night he wouldn't see you know, uh, as an old Thomas Dorsey spiritual from, from the 1920s or 30s, I believe, you know. Um, and this is where, for me, I am an American exceptionalist on one thing. And that's when it comes to, to it's folk music. Yeah. Because I believe in the American ex kind of barbaric experiment, yeah. the, 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 you know, the souls of black folk, the sorrow songs, the, the, that, that's Du Bois there, the, the, these, melodies and ideas and stories that rose from people in Appalachia and the deltas and in slums and cities and this the this particular expression of the kind of American roots and when I say American I mean from the Yukon all the way to Tierra del Fuego you know there's a deposit there there's an aesthetic deposit and, and that is maximally visible that is of course rooted in other things like the African one B and like any number of imports and exports all around the world but to me, that is where my socialism and where my leftism and really where my Catholicism uh, find their um, most, I would say, uh, most effective. And I would also say their most fundamental form of expression, you know, and and I think that that is, um, you know, the, the critique of atheism of atheists don't have any hymns was obviously the best one. <laughs> like, there's just zero question that that is the best argument. It's the only argument, you know. Um, I would say to the post-liberal or to the, the fellow aesthete, maybe yourself included, but I'm thinking about your listeners, like don't sleep on the left when it comes to aesthetics and, and these kinds of things. 
from the folk all the way into what I mainly disagree with, which is the German uh, um, uh, Frankfurt School work on aesthetics, which doesn't care very much for the American folk music. Yeah. And that's where I kind of part ways with that version of the left. But um, no, no, this isn't just personal, though. I think that the point you're raising in terms of and you can see the decrepit state of the aesthetics of right populism, yeah. frankly, you can see it. it it's it, it's it's its fruit is rotten to the core. Um, we could talk about fonts. I'm talking MAGA right now, yeah. right? <laughs> and it revels in this kind of perversity of ugliness, right? Yeah. Um, and like, sure, there, there, there's a whole there's a whole way in which, especially Americans and modernists or whatever, can kind of take the irony of that and turn it and twist it around and find their way into some very chic position. But like, let's be like basic and honest, right? The aesthetics of the right are hideous. Not only fascism and the barbarism and stuff like that. But also that, and whenever you get into sort of like the chic aesthetics of the prop, Nazi propaganda or Stalinism or, you know, cultural revolution, you know, stuff like that, it's all plastic. Like it can be broken through. Try to do that to, you know, to Woody Guthrie, mm -hmm. you know, try to do that to Bob Dylan, you know, try to do that to Mahalia Jackson, you know, that, that to me, that, that's my politics, plain and simple. Yeah. That's my, that's my socialism. If, if you rob me of my Mounier and of all my, you know, yeah. historical cues and stuff that that's, that's where I end up, you know, with all of it. Yeah. I think there's a lot more to be said about socialist aesthetics. I hope somebody writes something about it at some point. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> so Sam, before we go, anything you want to plug? Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, you know, um, not really. Just Google and, and, and see what's out there. My website is samrocha.com. I've got some stuff, you know, uh, some albums, some books and stuff. Honestly, my, I did a, a season one of a podcast called Folk Phenomenology, which is the title of my 2015 book. And I think that in that in those discussions with my guests, um, we were able to not only get into the the aesthetic question that we've been able to break open here, um, but also the pathos of that. Mm -hmm. um, if there was one thing to watch, it's it's. I have a, a, a discourse with uh, Vanessa Zuleta Goldberg. Oh yeah, yeah, I know her. Yeah, and we talk about liberation theology, and we start off talking about Romero, and you know, but like by the end of it, we're talking about like divine love, and it's very emotional, and it's very like, it's just shot through with the kind of with something that you can't find in like the new sincerity or like something that's like explicitly religious, explicitly Catholic, mm -hmm. explicitly Latin American. Sure. But not sociologically bound. I think at all, that's an episode. I would say, check that out. Okay. The context is liberation theology. Obviously that context is haunted by the left and by Catholic socialists, but I had a lot of people who went into it with their hackles up because of the liberation theology thing. And also because of any number of antipathies, to socialism came out of it being like, well, I know you both really love Jesus. So I guess I've got to stay my hand here and, and think about this a bit more. And, you know, loving Jesus and writing songs and talking about it emotionally or whatever, I mean, come on. That's the, you know, that is the ticket. That is I that is the 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 old, the new, and the every evangelization. You know, that's that's what it's about. Yeah. Well, Sam, thank you so much for coming on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right.